Hello, and welcome to the Dottacast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Pork Wenton. And welcome to the 151st episode of the Dottacast titled Apocalypse Now. God damn, you Excellent titles, Emmett. An analysis of the prologue to A Storm of Swords, in which some of the Night's Watch are planning a mutiny. And that's really it for this chapter. Not really much going on for this chapter at all. Kind of a boring opening to a book, George. What were you thinking, man? But yes, so thank you folks for listening. We thought we'd come back with a real quick episode here, right? Just to get our feet wet, just a couple of minutes. Thanks so much for checking in. Yeah, it's 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 awesome. Um, this episode is um, and this chapter are are uh, rather rather intense in in many many different different ways. But before we proceed into the episode proper, so you might have known we've uh, kind of been away for a little while, or I've it's not we've been away. I've been away for a little while. Uh, because we haven't been away at all because Emmett's been doing excellent episodes with guests along the way. So I just wanted to take the chance to thank all of you for listening in, checking in on me and sharing your support for me. It's been really awesome. Um, it's been sad being kind of away from you all. I, I've missed doing these episodes every single week. It's kind of like something that I look forward to. I mean, I get like kind of stressed out and nervous, like as I'm working on the episodes and I'm trying to like match Emmett's brilliance and I never do quite. So that's why I do like the funny bits for the synopsis. Don't say anything. You're not allowed to talk yet. Um, but, but, uh, but yes, it's, it's been, um, it's, it's been great. So I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to be, be back and thank you all for continuing to listening. Um, but there are a few folks I wanted to thank by name and that's our incredible, awesome, Friends, yeah, friends, friends who have hot seated the guest role alongside of Emmett during these past few months. So you guys are incredible. I just want to thank, highlight each of you by name. Like people like Clint, who is definitely not a spy. I love his shadow on the wall talk about Tyrion and the rest of the story. Luke for his big Bloodraven energy and his love for the Kraya of a Song of Ice and Fire, Bloodraven. Micah, the minor character grandmaster, who shared his love for the Redwall books. I, I, I haven't read the books, but now I kind of want to after he, uh, kind of shared his love for them. Shiloh and her love for medievalism and fiction in Song of Ice and Fire. That was really, that was a really awesome episode. Travis talking about Sharks and Jaws. Don't worry, Travis. I know the book, the, the movie is not overrated. It's rated correctly. Low for their discussion of gender and sexuality in Song of Ice and Fire. It's not a topic that I'm intimately familiar with, but I became more familiar with as a result of, of Lowe's work here. Jogi and how dragons fit into the oeuvre of fiction. That was pretty freaking awesome. Gretchen for her love of horror and how it interrelates with the Song of Ice and Fire. That was a really good episode. And I want to hear more about her perspective on season eight and Daenerys for sure at some point down the road. Rohane and talking about how much how she could love a character like Melisandre who doesn't really get much love. Alex on African-American and queer criticism of Song of Ice and Fire. I think his analysis of Dorne is really interesting and something that I want to give a little more thought because it's a place that I, I love a lot. But uh, but I could see the problems, the problematic aspects that George writes in, into his into his uh, story of Dorne. McCall for talking about Littlefinger, Judaism and Jewish stereotypes in fiction. Dr. Kavita, Moonton Finn and the historical diaries and how they influenced story. That was a really awesome episode. And Angelina and the love she brought to movie. I have never seen, but will now, even though musical theater and rock operas are really not my taste in movies. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that was a. Uh, it was, it, was, it was a really good episode all the same. But yeah, so thank you all. And I um, just wanted to highlight you all by, by name. I, I know it's kind of a long intro. You all are great friends and <sighs> I love you all. And if you were holding off on listening, that's you readers now waiting for the chapter by chapter episodes to resume. You're doing yourself a disservice. Get in there and listen. There. Enough emotional theatrics. Wait, wait, wait. One more. There is one man, just one, who has done an amazing job in my absence. And that's 
Abbott, who of course has been holding down the fort, doing wonderful work on Patreon and for our regular episodes. And uh, yeah, man, it's really great to see you again. And uh, it's been awesome listening to you. And um, I, I felt like kind of sad with not listening to you, but not being able to interact with you the same. I would, I would interact with you, like talk to you while you were like talking, but I wasn't able to like actually interact and see your reactions to me. So um, yeah, it's, it's great. So, I mean, that, so, you know, everyone should be standing up, oh, round of shush. applause, clapping, you know, doing all the things that normal people do. So thank you, man. It's, it's a pleasure to see you normal again. Normal people, what are those? Yeah, what, who are people? What are people? Why are people? Why? But no, as much fun as I had with all of those guests, and I uh, thank them too, it was such a great time having each and every one of them on and all, the, all those different topics. It was great to, to be able to talk about things uh, running far afield. But uh, it's just, it's not the same without you, not only to because uh, you are the living, beating heart of the Song of Ice and Fire fandom and no one does it better, but also because you're Jeff and I love you. Mm. And it's just, it's, it's not the same without you and, uh, and just not as good without you. Like, you know, I, I, I do my best, but, uh, you know, we, uh, we, ne- we needed you here to make it more than the sum of its parts. So we're going to, we're going to have that once more. And I, I, I know a ton of people are excited about it, but no one more so than I. <laughs> Absolutely. It's it's like the, the wedding song for A Song of Ice and Fire. Two hearts that beat as one, right? From uh, you know, That's basically... <laughs> exactly. That should be the tagline for our podcast, right? For the non-accounts <laughs> podcast. Two hearts True. that beat as one. We need to come up with lyrics. But, I love you know, it. We can work on that. We can do it. We can do it. Or we can... Our patrons can do it. Our excellent patrons who, of course, are, that's true. are tuning in live contest. for this episode. Mm-hmm. So, I haven't got to do this in forever. I'm so excited. This episode Woo. is, as always, brought to you by our Not a Small Council because it is not a small council. It gets larger and larger every single time I check in on Patreon. So, our Hand of the King, Wolf Van Zack, Grand Maester Tibob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Sir Keith J., Master Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster Doom, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Fort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gym that was promised. Lord Jacob Sisson, to the head of the king. Lady Zena Valyria, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Din, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B. Lawrence, Prince of Dorne. Kelly, Word of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs. Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds. Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden. Lady Stephanie. Lord Carlos. Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God. Sir Sorcedelica. Sugar Tit Stent, the Trog Delight Warrior. Lord Pension for Nostalgia. Queer Alex, who has chosen a brand new title for a Storm of Swords. Folks, this this person is on it. Please get on it too, because this is cool. Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, Herald of Cher and Bastard of Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives and Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the Thades and Gentle Thems, and the Not a Cast Non Binary Not an Army. What a title. Hall of Earth, waited for T Wow, A. A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H Town, Veneris of House Kogarian, the First for Dame, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress Farp, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great, Game of Thrones, Pushes the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpio of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgo. 
Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties of the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall Harrison, still absent shipwrecked in the Jade Sea. Find a life raft soon, bro. Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Harrenhal. Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal, pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dayton, Prince Burkertarian, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Gary the Boneway. Lord Charles Terrell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount the Mander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, War of the South, and the Heir of House Terrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State. Squire Matt S., future Matt S., the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms. Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth. Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard. Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring global author in the Seven Kingdoms. Lady of Starfall, Warnus of the South and the patron of free-wheeling bisexuals. Lady Jamisa, she who suggests that coconuts migrate. Lord Christoph of Arendelle, official ice master and deliverer, the valiant, pungent, reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, and prince consort to his ginger queen, his ginger sweet love queen, Anna. Lord Sir Septon Brothers and our two newest members of the small council. You heard that right. Two new members of the small council. Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, Warden of the King's Wood, and the Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms. And Sir Kell, contractor in charge of continually extending the small council table. God damn, it's so great to see all those names again. Thank you to all of our small council patrons. Thank you, as always, to our counselors. And it's so good and so important to have someone in charge of expanding it. Long overdue. We're going to run up against uh, zoning regulations with our current table, I think. So good call. Down with zoning regulations. Up with not zoning regulations. (laughs) (laughs) So our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode. We got political already. Oh, I know, right? We'll be talking about all published books, that is, the five doubles, three dunking novels, histories, interviews, the Winsomere sample chapters, as well as, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from, this is a strange username. I want to make sure I pronounce it correctly. Um, Brin, Brindon B. Fish. I don't know if I got that right. Anyway, Brin, Brindon B. Fish asks... Brondon. Brondon. That makes much more sense. Brondon B. Fish. He asks, gentlemen... Handsome, very intelligent gentleman. (laughs) I've been recently listening to all of the guest episodes, and there's been a question that's been asked of every guest by the handsome, intelligent poor Quentin. He's asked, how did you get into this series? I know you and we have all talked about our experiences in the first reading the books, but I wanted to ask whether you'd reshare your experiences. Additionally, do you have any specific memories of reading Storm of Swords for the first time? Well, what a handsome, intelligent note from, I'm sure, a very handsome, intelligent uh, uh, patron himself. So what do you think about that, Jeff, from from Brandon B. Fish? Whoever that might be. Brandon. Brandon. Be- I get it. Brandon. Like Brandon Stark. It's all making Brandon. sense now. So. Yeah. It's. How about. Brandon. Brandon. Like Maybe it's like brining. Like, like, like it's pickle. like a. That. Uh, right. Brining a pickle or like pork or something. That's Brandon Bay Fosh or something like that. I don't know. We're, we're, stre- we're stretching the English language. Exactly. Too. Exactly. I don't know. We're, I don't like we're just trying to accommodate. Fuck just trying concern. to get it right. So. So what, what do you think? <laughs> What do you think, Jeff? What do you think about your question there? How did you uh, tell us again how you got into the series? About mine? Me? Me? I asked you? the question. No, certainly Can not. I must have misspoke. <laughs> um, so this was actually, the, this is the first book that I had read after season two of the show. So I had watched up to season two, and then I immediately picked up the audiobooks. I don't fucking read. And started doing the, um, going through through the audiobooks on my way back and forth to work. 
And it was this book that was the first book that I was really interested in getting to because it got beyond... Oh, well, I thought it got beyond season two of the show. As it turns out, as we're going to find out in this prologue, this prologue is essentially the end of season two of Game of Thrones. Because if you remember season two, that's when the White Walkers show up on the Fist of the First Men and start to attack the uh, our, our friends our friends there. Uh, Storm of Swords, Chet isn't really our friend, the same way that Samuel Tarly, Gren, and Delors Ed are our friends on the show. But this was essentially the end of that. And then, I, this is really interesting. I remember like visibly groaning the the next chapter when it was like Jamie I'm like oh my god we're gonna get this motherfucker's perspective because I was at the time I was a wrong bad ugly who didn't believe that Jamie was worth having a perspective in a song of ice and fire but uh I quickly got my, my mind changed when we got into Jamie's chapters and uh, I'll just share one specific memory and that is the uh, the red wedding and what happened with the red wedding for me is this is 2012 uh is that I was going on a date with someone and I was listening to the Catelyn chapter, which is her final chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire. And I'm like, it's an ominous tone when you're getting into the chapter. And I was like, kind of like driving there, just, you know, driving to, to go on this date. And then I, I, I pulled up to the restaurant and we finally get to like, when the Reigns of Caspier started playing. And I was like, oh, this is, this is bad. So I was like, so I pulled out of my spot and just started driving around the block. And like, as like things progressively got worse and worse, and worse and worse. Like I kept like circling the block like over and over and over again. And by the end of it, like I was just, I was just a, a fucking mess. Like when Rob Stark and Catelyn were all dead and all the Northern Lords were, were, were dead and, and ladies were dead too, those that were there. And I just had like the worst date of my entire life. And you know, it turns out that um, didn't end up marrying that person. That wasn't the person that ended up being my wife ultimately. I, I know it's shocking, but maybe the Red Wedding should have been the, uh, <laughs> the thing that would have... Uh, <laughs> That was the prophecy right there, and I refused to heed the prophecy for another uh, another eight months. But that's okay. That's that's a different personal story for another different time. So I'm curious about you because, as I always say, you are the actual OG when it comes to A Song of Ice and Fire. You had read these books prior to Game of Thrones, the TV show coming out. So you must have been reading The Storm of Swords in like 2003, 2004. And I'm curious, what happened when you read that? Read this? Yeah, book? I read uh, Storm of Swords first around the lead up to A Feast for Crows. My mom recommended them to me, and uh, I, I I was uh, hooked from the very end of the prologue with with uh, Waymar Royce rising up above Will. And yeah, Storm, I remember yeah being being very distinct the first time through, even more so than than Game or Clash. And um, the Army of the Dead attack on the Fist of the First Men was one of the main reasons why. As we'll talk about more when we get to Sam's first chapter, I very vividly remember my first time through that one. The Red Wedding too. I remember. I, I know. I, I know everyone's experience with the Red Wedding is throwing the book across the room. Like that's the that's the typical reaction because of the devastation of it, and it, it was devastating. But I was I was kind of just exhilarated <laughs> by it. I have to admit, the first time through, just because of the ambition of it, and because I realized. As I got to the end, oh, wow, everything is going to have a ripple effect from this. That's amazing. And uh, I was just kind of I was kind of lost in that that aspect <laughs> of it. And uh, it, it definitely it, it, it set me up for Feast in a way that was very enjoyable. But I think if I'd been waiting for Feast, maybe not so much because Feast definitely threw me for a loop right after that because of uh, the, the different tempo of it and focused on different characters. But I, I remember... Yeah, the 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 thrill of storm, and now on reread, I think it's a uh, it's going to be just as enjoyable, but much more kind of much sadder because I know where a lot of it leads, and I can kind of step back from the 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 just the excitement of finding things out. 
so yeah, that's I mean that's what, yeah that's what I remember most of getting through Storm is just the thrill of it, or even when uh, Tyrion kills Tywin and Shay. Obviously, as devastating that is, my first time through, I was like, oh my god, Tywin's dead. That's going to change everything, just like yes. with the Red Wedding. So it was it was a lot. It was a lot of that. So uh, thank you so much to um to uh Brindon Boffish for the question. I guess I guess perfect. Change change that username. But uh, if, so if you want to ask us questions <laughs> that we answer here in the Not a Cast podcast, you're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at Patreon.com/slash Not a Cast A S O I A F, where you can also get show notes, bonus episodes, free merch, access to the Not a Slack, and more. Again, that's over at Patreon.com/slash Not a Cast A S O I A F. Yes, indeed. Please come join our patron. We would love to have you. And for all of our $5 a month, poor fellow and above patrons, our next Patreon bonus episode will be an in-depth look at the 2008 animated film, Waltz with Bashir. Now, if you've known Ammon and I long enough, you know that eventually we're going to start talking about Waltz with Bashir on the Twitter timeline. It has to, it usually goes every like 30 to 45 days, but finally we're going to do a full out episode about this movie, which is about both memory and how human beings react to memory and how we encompass memory and remember things that happened, specifically in the context of the 1982 invasion of Lebanon by the state of Israel and the Sabra and Shatila massacre. It's both a personal favorite of both of both of us, as you probably tell, and one of the best films about war ever made. Again, this episode will only be available to our poor fellow and above patrons. So again, come join us at patreon.com forward slash not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with um, A Song of Ice and Fire, a lot of shit had happened. When we had last said hello to the men of the Night's Watch, they had decamped to the Fist of the First Men and were debating what to do about Mance Raider and the Wildlings. Meanwhile, tensions rose among the lower enlisted ranks of the Night's Watch about the leadership of the Watch. And, you know, freezing their fucking balls out balls off here in the north of, here north of the wall let's find out how all of that debate becomes completely moot in this synopsis of the storm of swords prologue the day was gray and bitter cold and the dogs would not take the scent the big black bitch had taken one sniff at the bear tracks backed off and skulked back to the pack with her tail between her legs the dogs huddled together miserably on the riverbank as the wind snapped at them Chet felt it too, biting through his layers of black wool and boiled leather. Wow, what a joyous open to the happiest book in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. And bless George's heart for giving us the happiest, most loyal, most moral character in this series to open this book. Chet thinks it's way too cold and can feel his boils when he twists his mouth. He wishes he was back at Castle Black attending ravens and making fires for Maester Eamon, but no! Jon Snow had stolen that role for him and given given it to Samuel Tarly. Chet gently tugs at the leashes for his dogs and politely says, please, doggies, please hunt. No, he actually doesn't do that. He yanks the leashes and yells at his dogs to hunt. I wonder, is animal cruelty a sign or signal from George that a character might be bad? I don't know. Regardless, these dogs won't hunt. They whine. And Chet, hero that he is, threatens to eat them. Joining Chet is Lark the Sisterman, who wears black gloves and complains about how cold it is. He advises Chet to stop fretting about the hounds not hunting. The bear isn't worth getting cold over. But then another ranger by the name of Small by the name of Small Paul says the Lord Commander would be happy if they couldn't if they wouldn't be happy if they came back without food. But Lark says fuck the LC. 
He's going to die anyways tonight. Small Paul blinked his black little eyes. Maybe he'd forgotten, Chet thought. He was stupid enough to forget most anything. Why do we have to kill the old bear? Why don't we just go off and let him be? You think he'll let us be, said Lark. He'll hunt us down. You want to be hunted, you great muttonhead? No, said Small Paul. I don't want that. I don't. So you'll kill him, said Lark. Yes, the huge man stamped the butt of his spear on the frozen riverbank. I will. He shouldn't hunt us. Lark says they only need to kill all of the officers, and Chet is sick and tired of hearing this. They're only killing the LC, two men on the watch, Dywin Barman, and of course, Samwell Tarley. And they're going to do it real quiet-like. He says this while his boils heroically flare red with rage. Everyone needs to do their part, especially Paul, who needs to know he's killing Borman on the third, not the second watch. Like, how many times does he have to tell this guy that? Chet knows the time is ripe to do some murder as it would be a new moon and the wildlings would be on them any day now. He was going to be away when that happened. 300 sworn brothers of the Night's Watch had ridden north, 200 from Castle Black and another 100 from the Shadow Tower. It was the biggest ranging in living memory, near a third of the Watch's strength. They meant to find Ben Stark, Sir Waymer Royce, and the other rangers who'd gone missing and discover why the wildlings were leaving their villages. Well, they were no closer to Stark and Royce than when they'd left the wall, but they learned where all the wildlings had gone, up into the icy heights of the godforsaken Frostfangs. They could squat up there to the end of time and it wouldn't prick Chet's boils nuns. But no, they were coming down, down the milk water. Chet looks up and sees the river icing over a stony bank. He remembers how Thor and Smallwood returned from a scouting to report to Mormon. Kedge, one of the scouts, had, cho- had told Chet what was up there, reporting that twenty to 30,000 wildlings were in the foothills. They were slow, but they were coming, with Harmadog set in the van with 500 a horse. That had made everyone just just a tiny little bit uneasy, you know, 20, 30,000 versus 300 or so. Kedge then told them that the rest of the wildlings moved as a giant civilian camp with all of their livestock, pack animals, and supplies for the journey. And they were coming down the milkway, which would put them past the fist of the first men. Chet thinks that means it's time to go, but Mormon had only solidified the defensive network around the hill rather than roll back towards the wall, meaning that everyone was going to die. Worse for Chet, Thor and Smallwood wanted to attack the wildlings, thinking he could catch them unawares. If they crushed them in battle, they would scatter them and make them combat ineffective, especially with all those women and children. But the Night's Watch is good, right guys? Right, right, right. 300 against 30,000. Chet called that rank madness, and what was matter still was that Sir Malador had been persuaded, and the two of them together were on the point of persuading the old bear. If we wait too long, this chance may be lost. Never to come again, Smallwood was saying to anyone who had listened. Against that, Sirotten Withers said, We are the shield that guards the realms of men. You do not throw away your shield for no good purpose. But to that, Thor and Smallwood had said, In a sword fight, a man's surest defense is the swift stroke that slays his foes, not cringing behind a shield. But Smallwood and Withers were not in command. Elsie Mormont was, and he was waiting for more scouting reports. Jarman Buckwell and his dudes went up to the giant stair. Corn half-handed, that guy whose name is John Snow, I think is his name, who went up to the Skirling Pass. Chet smiles, thinking that John Snow was dead with the wildling spear up his butt. Maybe his wolf is dead too. I guess Chet thinks this because he's a hero or something? 
I don't know. Starting to doubt that. Returning back to the present, Chet says there's no bear here, just an old print. Hmm. Yeah, about that. He yanks the dogs back, laughing as he thinks how he hadn't fed the dogs for three days so he could turn them loose on the horse lines after two of his men cut the tethers of the horse line. There'd be so much confusion that no one would notice 14 brothers of the Night's Watch missing. 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 What is the word I'm looking for? Missing. Lark wanted twice as many as that, but he was a stupid fucking sisterman. Too many people would mean the conspiracy would be found out. 14 was the right number. Small Paul was one of his, the strongest man on the wall, even if he was slower than a dead snail. He'd once broken a wildling's back with a hug. They had Dirk as well, named for his favorite weapon, and the little gray man the brothers called Softfoot, who'd raped a hundred women in his youth and liked to boast how none had never seen nor heard him until he shoved it up inside of them. The plan was Chet's. He was the clever one. He'd been steward to old Maester Eamon for four good years before that bastard Jon Snow had done him out so his job could be handed to that fat pig of a friend. When he killed Sam Tarly tonight, he planned to whisper, Give my love to Lord Snow, right in his ear before he sliced Sir Piggy's throat open to let the blood come bubbling out through all the layers of suet. Chet knew the raven so he wouldn't have no trouble there, no more than he would with Tarly. One touch of the knife and that craven would piss his pants and start blubbering for his life. Let him beg. It won't do him no good. After he opened his throat, he opened the cages and shoo the birds away so no messages reached the wall. Softfoot and Smallpaw would kill the old bear. Dirk would do Blaine and Lark and his cousin would silence Bannon and Old Diamond to keep them from sniffing after their trail. They'd been cacheting food for a fortnight and Sweet Donald and Clubfoot Carl would have the horses ready. With Mormont dead, command would pass to Sir Otten Withers, an old done man and failing. He'd be running for the wall before sundown, and he won't waste no men sending them after us neither. Dogs yank Chet as he heads back to the fist of the first men. Mormont had ordered torches lit and lined along the ring wall at the top of the hill. They cross an icy cold brook as Lark explains that he and his cousins are heading back to the sisters. Chet very quietly thinks that they're all going to be beheaded as deserves as soon as they got back to the sisters, because you could check into the Night's Watch, but you can never check out. Although Lophan was going to Tyrosh, where he could get away with some honest thieving, which I have some serious doubts about that, Chet was tempted to join Alo with Tyrosh, but he didn't know how to do shit. He had no trade. You see, he was brought up the right way by his dad, who used to walk into the bogs and come out covered in, oh my god, leeches, that he sometimes had Chet pick off him. Then again, Chet had smashed one leech one time and had, and had been beaten bloody for that. The Maesters bought 12 leeches for one penny, which seems, um, I don't know if that's exactly fair, a fair trade for the amount of terror and horror that I'm feeling right now for imagining walking into a lake and coming out with leeches and bogs. Oh my God, terrible. But Chet wasn't interested in going home. He was going to Craster's Keep where he'd be the lore of that keep. And the banner that he was going to choose? A dozen leeches on a field of pink. And... Fair warning, the next part of this chapter is a rough part of the chapter, but I think it's worth quoting to kind of get into the mindset of who Chet actually is. So listeners, please beware. But why stop at a lord? Maybe he should be a king. Mance Raider started out a crow. I could be a king, same as him, and have me some wives. Craster had 19, not even counting the young ones, the daughters he hadn't gotten around to betting yet. Half them wives were as old and ugly as Craster, but that didn't matter. The old ones Chet could put to work cooking and cleaning for him, pulling carrots and slopping pigs, while the young ones warmed his bed and bore his children. Crasher wouldn't object none. Not one small paw gave him a hug. The only women Chet had ever known were the whores he'd bought in Molestown. When he'd been younger, the village girls took one look at his face with its boils and its wen and turned away sickened. 
the worst was that slattin' Bessa. She'd spread her legs for every boy in Hag's Mire, so he'd figure, why not him too? He even spent a morning picking wildflowers when he heard she liked them. But she just laughed in his face and told him she'd crawl into bed with his father's leeches before she'd crawl in with one of with, crawl in one with him. She stopped laughing when he put his knife in her. That was sweet. The look on her face. So he pulled the knife out and put it in again. When they caught him down near Seven Streams, old Lord Walter Frey hadn't even bothered to come himself, come himself to do the judging. He'd sent one of his bastards at Water Rivers, and the next thing Chet had known, he's walking to the wall with that foul-smelling Black Devil Yorn to pay for his one sweet moment they took his own, his whole life. But now he meant to take it back, and Craster's women too. That twisted old wildling had the right of it. If you want a woman to wife, you take her, and none of this giving her flowers, so then maybe they shall not notice your bloody boils. Chet didn't mean to make that mistake again. Man, I'm starting to doubt that Chet is the hero of this story called A Storm of Swords. Anyways, Chet reassures himself that this is very definitely going to work, guys. Sir Otten would head to the Shadow Tower and not stop by Craster's Keep on the way back because reasons, I guess. And even if Thorn Smallwood wanted to attack, Otten was higher ranking. It didn't matter anyways. They're going and they're not risking killing Otten or Thorn. Chet, said Smallpaw as they trudged along a stony game trail through the sentinels and soldier pines. What about the bird? What bloody bird? The last thing Chet needed now was some muttonhead going on about a bird. The old ra- the old bear's raven, Smallpaw said. If we kill him, who's going to feed his bird? Who bloody cares? Kill the bird if you like to. Oh, I don't want to hurt no bird, the old big man said. But that's a talking bird. What if it tells what we did? Bark the sisterman laughed. Smallpaw, think it's a castle wall, he mocked. Yish. You shut up with that, said Small Paul dangerously. Chet reassures Paul that the bird won't snitch on them, especially since Mormont will be, um, dead. Ah, well, in that case, can Small Paul hold on to the bird? Chet says, Chet says, yeah, but that's just to shut Paul, Small Paul up. And Lark puts in that they can eat the bird if they need to. But Paul disapproves of this action. I doubt continue to heighten about whether Chet or Lark are actually good guys or not. Maybe... Seems like Martin is hinting at maybe a no, ultimately, in this question. We'll find out. But then the but then they hear voices as they approach the fist of the first men. They come up to the western side of the hill and walk south to the gentler slope and find Samuel Tarley engaged in arch- archery practice with Gren and Dullerhead. Of course, Chet has choice thoughts about Samuel, who he lovingly names Sir Piggy. He hates him, though, because he had an easy job attending Maester Eamon, who, by the way, never hit him. But no! Samuel Tarley had come in to take over just because he could read. Maybe Chet will have Samuel read his knife before Chet opens his throat. With that pleasant thought in mind, Chet decides to watch archery practice and sees three of Samuel's arrows in front of the target before Sam shoots another arrow that goes wide left of the target to Chet's laughter. We'll never find that one, and I'll be blamed, announced Ed Tullett, the dour gray-haired squire everyone called, Duller said. Nothing ever goes missing, that they don't look at me, ever since that time I lost my horse, as if that could be helped. He was white, and it was snowing. What did they expect? Gren tells Sam to hold the bow steady, but Sam complains that the bow is heavy. He shoots another arrow, and it goes ten feet over the target. I believe you knocked a leaf off that tree, Sedeller said. Fall is falling fast enough. There's no need to help it, he sighed. And we all know what follows fall. Gods, but I am cold. Shoot the last arrow, Samo. I believe my tongue is freezing to the roof of my mouth. 
Chet thinks Sam is about to cry, but Gren encourages Sam to try again. This time, Sam gets his final arrow, pulls without squinting, and wham! The arrow hits the target. Ecstatic, Sam says that he hit the target. Gren says that he hit the target in the ribs. And Ed says he might have gotten a lung. That is if <laughs> that is if trees had lungs. Ed, Ed just just fantastic with these 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 little things he says but good shot all the same but according to chet sam only hit a tree he tells sam that when smith's raider comes it's going to be different when the wildlings are running at him samuel will probably piss himself foreshadowing yeah the fat boy was shaking duller said put a hand on his shoulder brother he said solemnly just because it happened that way for you doesn't mean that samuel will suffer the same what are you talking about tullet that axe the one that split your skull is it true that half your wits leaked out on the ground and your dogs ate them? Gren bursts into laughter and Samuel smiles. Chet kicks his dog, yanks on the leash, and starts up the hill, darkly thinking that Samuel won't laugh tonight. If he only had time, he'd kill Dullerus Ed as well. Chet climbs the steep hill as the dogs bark and pull at him. He kicks them again and whips the ugly one. Chet reaches Mormont's black tent and tells the LC that they only found tracks but no bear. Mormont thinks that's too bad as they could have used the fresh meat as Blood Raven, er, Mormont's raven cries out, Meat! 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 No foreshadowing here. Detected. Chet thinks that they could cook the dogs, but he stays silent. He bows to Mormont as he exits the tent, thinking that this is the last time he'll ever have to bow to him. As he departs, he thinks it's growing rather cold outside, even colder than before. The dogs huddle together in the frozen mud, and Chet wonders if he should go huddle with them. Instead, he decides to keep moving to keep warm. He tours the camp, asking around to see what's on the minds of the men. What's on most of these guys' minds is that it's real fucking cold outside. The cold winds rise, it grows dark out, which coupled with it growing colder means um, nothing, nothing at all, of course. Chet makes his way over to a guy named Little Giant, who says the high officers are talking fiercely in Mormont's tent. Chet comments that that's just what the highborn do. Talk. Lark sidled closer. Jeez, Fruits keeps going on about the bird, he warned, glancing around to make certain no one was close. Now he's asking if we cached on any sea for the damn thing. It's a raven, said Chet. It eats corpses. Lark grinned. His might be? Or yours. It seemed to Chet that they needed the big man more than they needed Lark. Stop fretting about small Paul. You do your part. He'll do his. It was twilight when Chet finally gets some time alone to hone his sword. No, I don't think that's a masturbation reference, I think. He doesn't take his gloves off to sharpen his blade because it was way too cold, and he didn't want to lose any skin. The dogs whimper when the sun goes down, which of course means nothing, nothing at all. Chet gives the dogs some water and promises they'll get to feast soon. Speaking of which, uh, Chet smells dinner and heads over to get a bowl of bean and bacon soup. There, he hears Diamond going on about how the woods are too quiet and how there's no wildlife about, which means absolutely nothing, of course. Chet thinks all the animals went someplace warm while looking at four of his men at the campfire, wondering if they were still in on the conspiracy. Two of them, Dirk and Sweet Donald Hill, seemed good, but Sawwood and Maslin seemed jumpy. He'd have to keep his eyes on them. Assemble! The shout came suddenly from a dozen throats and quickly spread to every part of the hilltop camp. Men of the Night's Watch, assemble at the central fire! Chet frowns, finishes his soup, and joins the group at the hilltop fire. Elsie Mormont stands there in front of the fire, spits with his saliva freezing before it hits the ground. Brothers, he said, men of the Night's Watch! Men! His raven screamed. Men! Men! The wildlings are on the march, following the course of the milk water down out of the mountain. 
Thorin believes their van will be upon us ten days hence. Their most seasoned raiders will be Harmadog's head in that van. The rest will likely form a rear guard or ride in close company with Matt's raider himself. Elsewhere, their fighters will be spread thin along the line of march. They have oxen, mules, horses, but few enough. Most will be afoot and ill-armed and untrained. Such weapons as they carry are more like to be stone and bone than steel. They are burdened with women, children, herds of sheep and goats, and all their worldly goods besides. In short, though they are numerous, they are vulnerable, and they do not know that we are here. Or so we must pray. Chet thinks, um... Yeah, that's fucking dumb. The Wildlings damn well know that they're here, noting that Corrin and Jarman Buckwell haven't returned. The LC continues. Matt Sprader means to break the wall and bring Red War to the Seven Kingdoms. Well, that's a game two could play. On the morrow, we'll bring the war to him. We ride at dawn with all of our strength, the old bear said as a murmur went through the assembly. We will ride north and loop around to the west. Harma's van will be well past the fist by the time we turn. The frost fangs of the, the foothills of the frost fangs are full of narrow, winding valleys made for ambush. Their line of march will stretch for many miles. We shall fall on them in several places at once and make them swear we are 3,000, not 300. We'll hit hard and be away before their horsemen can form up to face us. Thorin Smallwood said, If they pursue us, we'll lead them on a merry chase and then wheel and hit again farther down the column. We'll burn their wagons, scatter their herds, and slay as many as we can. Matt Sprayer himself if we find him. If they break and return to their hovels, we've won. If not, we'll harry them all the way to the wall and see to it that they leave a trail of corpses to mark their progress. One Night's Watchman says there are, you know, thousands of wildlings, dude. Maslin says they're going to die. Bloodraven, again, screaming at this point, says, die, die, die. And L.C. Mormont says many of them are, are going to die. Yeah, maybe all of them, but that's why they're all in black. For we are the swords in the darkness, the watchers on the wall. The fire that burns against the cold, Sir Mallory Locke drew his sword. The light that brings the dawn, others answered, and more swords were pulled from scabbards. Then all of them were drawing, and it was near three hundred upraised swords and as many voices crying, The horn that wakes the sleepers, the shield that guards the realms of men. Chet had no choice but to join his voice to the others. The air was misty with their breath, and firelight glinted off the steel. He was pleased to see Lark and Softfoot and Sweet Donald Hill joining in, as if they were as big a fools as the rest. That was good. No sense to draw attention when their hour was so close. The shouting finally dies down, and the wind picks up at the ring wall as the flames swirl, almost like they were cold, which of course means absolutely nothing. Bloodraven still screaming, like, guys, pay attention to me, to me, ears on me, die! calls one last out time. He says, die. Chet thinks the bird is clever as everyone gets dismissed. and He doesn't know how right he is. Heading back to his dogs and furs, Chet mentally goes over if anything can go wrong with his plan. He ends up listening to the wailing wind, thinking it sounds like a child, but otherwise it was extremely quiet. He could see Bess's face floating before him. It wasn't the knife I wanted to put in you. He wanted to tell her. I picked you flowers, wild roses and tansy and golden cups. It took me all morning. His heart was thumping like a drum so loud he feared it might wake the camp. Ice kicked his beard all around his mouth. Where did that come from with, with Bessa? Whenever he thought of her before, it had only been to remember the way she looked dying. What was wrong with him? He could hardly breathe. Had he gone to sleep? He got up to his knees and something wet and cold touched his nose. Chet looked up and snow was falling.
Chet cries, feeling tears freezing on his cheeks. He rages that it isn't fair as the snow is ruining everything, allowing everyone to see the tracks he and his co-conspirators would leave. They'd all be tracked down and killed, and their horses would stumble and break a leg. We're done, he realized. Done before we began. We're lost. There'd be no lord's life for the leech man's son, no keep to call his own, no wives nor crowns, only a wildling sword in his belly and then an unmarked grave. The snow's taken it all from me. The bloody snow. Snow had ruined him once before. Snow and his pet pig. Chet gets stiffly to his feet, brushing off snowflakes that he compares to pale, cold bugs, which is some pretty interesting, good imagery from George. He decides, though, he's still going after Samuel Tarley. Chet gets lost among the tents, but he finally finds the tent where Samuel is staying. He sees the lean-to is covered by snow, and he approaches, dagger in hand. One of Sam's ravens says, Snow! And another joins him. All Chet had to do was put his hand over Sam's mouth to muffle his cries, and then... Chet stopped mid-step, swallowing his curse as the sound of the horns shuddered through the camp, faint and far, yet unmistakable. Not now, gods be damned, not now! The old bear had hidden far eyes in the ring of trees around the fist to give warning of any approach. German buckwolves back from this giant stair, Chet figured a corn half-hand from the skirling past. A single blast of the horn meant brothers returning. If it was the half-hand, Jon Snow might be with him alive. Samuel Tarly sits up, staring into the snow. The ravens call, and Chet hears his dogs barking. Half the camp is up. Chet clutches his dagger hard, hoping the sound goes away, but then... Sam asks if there was two horn blasts. He gets out of his tent and sees Chet standing there. Did Sam dream of two horn blasts? No, it was two blasts for foes approaching. The wildlings are coming. But Chet's a big, strong man. He doesn't care about bloody harma. Matt's raider. Thorne had told him that the wildlings would be here soon. And... The sound went on and on and on until it seemed it would never die. The ravens were flapping and screaming, flying about their cages and banging off the bars. And all about the camp, the brothers of the Night's Watch were rising, donning their armor, buckling on sword belts, reaching for battle axes and bows. Samuel Tarly stood, shaking, his face the same color as the snow that swirled down all around them. Three! He squeaked to Chet. That was three! I heard... Three! They, 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 they never blow three! No, no, not for hundreds of thousands of years! Three means others! Chet made a sound that was half a laugh and half a sob, and suddenly his small clothes were wet, and he can feel the piss running down his leg, see steam rising off the front of his breeches. And that is the synopsis for the A Storm of Swords prologue. Wow! been fun doing that one doing prologues all over again this chapter has it all my friend a pov character letters words even sentences no i'm kidding of course this chapter is is great you all could see all of that rising tension finally boil over and i love how this chapter kicks off a storm of swords with a bang what did you think sir well home run man i loved your lark voice so much that was great he sounded like a like a looney tunes character it was just perfect and uh, oh, and great with the, the tension at the end there. So uh, I'm so glad to have you back doing synopses too. Uh, so this prologue, yeah, whew, this this 
This prologue sets the pattern for A Storm of Swords. It's a Rube Goldberg device. It's like a game of mousetrap with so many moving parts that snap together with precision. There are wheels within wheels within wheels, to borrow from Dune. Everyone has a plan, and they all contradict each other, so only one plan, at most, can work. You got our POV Chet's mutiny, bumping up against Elsie Mormont's strategy, which is set against Mance's strategy, and then the Army of the Dead shows up to make it all moot. It's an exhilarating start to the book, especially with how it ends. You have no choice but to keep reading A Storm of Swords after this. You said it, man. You can't help but keep reading A Song of Ice and Fire in total after this point. But man, Chet, what to, what to say about Chet? I mean, lots, as you're going to find out for this episode, and we go through this chapter. But yeah, Chet, what a, what a goof. Is that the word I'm looking for? Probably not. What, what I like to think about regarding Chet is how he's a character that kind of comes onto the page out of nowhere. I mean, sure, the careful reader might remember Chet as appearing on page in A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings, but absolutely no reader thought he'd be a point-of-view character in A Song of Ice and Fire. So why did George have this wild and crazy guy be the POV? Well, I think one reason is that he was unexpected, but also because Chet gives us a POV who's someone on the outside. Sure, he's a Night's Watchman, exiled to the Wall for the crime of murder. He's also locationally outside of civilization, as Westeros, most of Westeros knows it, far north of the Wall. And to make matters worse, Chet is outside of the in-group in the Night's Watch. He's a complete and total outsider. But he's not here like Luke Skywalker kind of is, like a babe in the woods, like to explore or explain the setting to readers, because he's not giving a new perspective. He's not giving us... He's not showing us something we've never seen before. Rather, I think George uses Chet as a new set of eyes looking on a familiar circumstance. Circumstance, And that viewpoint that Chet brings is um something. We're definitely going to get into all of that. We definitely will. But it's, it's such a specific tone. But of course, this chapter is setting up a, a storm of swords as a whole. So we should probably talk a little bit about that. I did an episode, a kind of preview episode, uh, covering what I was most looking forward to a storm of swords, what I thought about it as a whole. So if you haven't checked it out, go ahead over to Podbean and, and take a listen to that. But uh, I compared Clash of Kings to, to Godfather 2. A Storm of Swords is like if you took the fir- the climax of the first Godfather, the, the baptism slash assassinations, and just like played it on repeat. This is George's Greek slash Shakespearean tragedy. This is his Oedipus, his Othello, his things fall apart. It's all about uh, catharsis. It's all about that big purge. But uh, again, I already uh, blathered on for a whole episode about this. So I'm, I'm, uh, I really want to hear what you have to say about Storm of Swords. What a... Uh, Coming into Storm, from from your perspective, what are you thinking about? It was a great episode, first off. I love listening to you talk about A Storm of Swords. I think, you know, I I was really interested in in your conversations about Davos and Jamie and and the different things that you talked about there. And we're definitely going to have a lot of time to explore that come, uh, come, you know, this whole book called A Storm of Swords. There's 79 total chapters in this book. It's a long, long book. It's great. But uh, but yeah, this is is a, a book that really kind of captures, captures a lot of, things for people, a lot of different things. But it's interesting because this was not a book that George planned to write for A Song of Ice and Fire originally. And we did kind of cover that in, in previous episodes, either on Patreon or on the regular podcast, because the original plan for A Song of Ice and Fire was for it to be a trilogy, <laughs> a trilogy, which was supposed to be a Game of Thrones, a Dance with Dragons, and then fi- finally the Winds of Winter. Of course, what ended up happening has been talked about ad nauseum at this point by you know people like me, but I wanted to talk a little bit about why this book remains, despite our best efforts. We had a whole episode about this, the most popular book in A Song of Ice and Fire. 
it, I think the, one of the main reasons why this book is so popular is in terms of structure, A Storm of Swords comprises the final third of George R. R. Martin's original conception of his first book, The Game of Thrones. That rule of three that we talk about a fair amount here on the podcast is something that George likes a lot with his plots, his character arcs, and his reveals. But it's also something George does really well with his plot structure. A Storm of Swords is the third act of, I guess, the first act, if you want to call it that. This is a major reason why A Storm of Swords is the most popular book of the series. All of the domos that George has set up in A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings falls here. You got your red and your purple weddings. You got John becoming Elsie of the Night's Watch. You have Danny becoming a queen unto herself. And then you have the reveals about who sent Bran's cat spawn, who murdered John Aaron, etc., etc. So this is a plot resolution intensive book. And the love for this book flows from that fact. For that matter, I think George himself was inspired by all of that plot resolution and wrote it like a maniac. I think he was talking last year in one of his Not A Blog posts and said he was writing about 150 manuscript pages a month when he was at the height of writing A Storm of Swords, which is really freaking insane in terms of the writing speed, especially compared to uh, recent writing speeds, let's say. Though there was some material cut from A Clash of Kings to A Storm of Swords, I think um, a friend of mine, Zionysus, did an analysis of this and found, I think it was about 264 manuscript pages were cut from Clash to A Storm of Swords, potentially. A Storm of Swords came in in total at 1,521 manuscript pages in total, with the vast majority of it being written between November 1998 and April 2000 when he actually finished the book. And George has stated that his process has been to write non-sequentially, and this was actually the case for A Storm of Swords because the final thing that he wrote for this book was The Red Wedding, which occurs roughly two-thirds of the way through A Storm of Swords. I, ultimately, though, as much as, as much shade as I throw on A Storm of Swords, it's all in, in love because this book actually is a legitimate triumph in writing. George R. Martin really loved this book. I, I do, of course. It's no, it Dance with Dragons. Of course, see your episode of why Dance with Dragons is greater than sign A Storm of Swords. But the book provides many moments that remain in the cultural zeitgeist 20 plus years after it was published. And of course, it remains in the zeitgeist specifically because of the Red Wedding episode, The Reigns of Casimir from Game of Thrones, Season 3, Episode 9. So great book, interesting book to for George to write, really got into it. Um, but this is the book that's the fastest he's ever written a book so far, and I think probably will be forever going forward. Right, unfortunately true. And yeah, much as we have our, our contrarian and correct opinions, it's, it's clear why everyone falls in love with Storm and why George was able to write it so quickly. It feels uh, inspired a lot of the times, like it's something's just flowing through him. And much as I love Feast and Dance, they do not feel that way. They feel like George was is earning every narrative inch because he is. So Storm... Storm feels like uh, like a bolt from the blue, and the, this chapter definitely feels that way too, this prologue. Like I was saying, it's a ruthless machine. It's less memorable in terms of style than the previous prologues, and I do miss that. I miss the hellish color palette of Dragonstone, all that wild imagery of Will's prologue in book one. But Chet's prologue is all about the gut punch at the end, and everything else is reverse engineered to support that. So it has to work differently from Will's prologue, Beyond the Wall, where the atmosphere clued us in to what was about to happen. There were those lines, uh, until tonight, something was different tonight. Will had felt as though something were watching him, something cold and implacable that loved him not. So that sets up for the reader that there's something in the woods, something hunting these characters. Chet's prologue only works if, like him, we have no idea what's about to happen. George still sprinkles in clues, but on first read, we miss them. On reread, the opening image of the bear print the dogs refuse to track is a giveaway. They're not tracking it because it was left by a goddamn zombie bear who's about to attack. 
Now, we already know first time through that the undead are up here, and we already know that the animals don't like them. So how does George keep us from realizing what's going to happen? He sets things up with one hand, while the other distracts the audience. Misdirection is his favorite game. George gives us more obvious clues, the cold rising, local animals suddenly going silent as we go, but by then, we're already locked into the unfolding narrative of Chet's mutiny. We think that's what the chapter is about. Moreover, Chet himself is focused on escaping Mance, not the White Walkers. John's chapters in Clash, Beyond the Wall, were also more focused on the Wildlings. The mutiny and the Wildling attack aren't just red herrings, though. They pay off in unexpected ways. We will see a Night's Watch mutiny at Craster's Keep, after Chet is already dead. We will see the Wildlings attack the Watch, but it's those left behind at Castle Black, after Mormont and most of the men on the Great Ranging are dead. So George sets up these threads, then shoves them aside, and then brings them back when we'd almost forgotten about them. And that's just brilliant structure. You're right about it being brilliant structure. And in a weird way, this chapter reminds me of John's final chapter so far in the story, but John's final chapter in A Dance with Dragons. The one where John maybe gets assassinated and absolutely gets assassinated and dies at the end of the chapter. There's that growing sense of dread built into both chapters. And we think that it's the lack of a fruitful hunt or Queen Selyse's declaration that let them die. Then wait, no, the growing dread is couched in the fact that Ghost is going crazy because of Borok's boar, or all the dogs whimpering in this chapter. Then there's tense meetings with the conspirators. Chet and his crew, John actually beats with the Night's Watch conspirators in the middle of the chapter right before the pink letter arrives. But wait, it's all interrupted by a wrench in the plan, the pink letter, and then the snow that's falling. Also, snow is falling in John's final chapter too. So you do kind of get the idea that George was basing some of this off of, uh, uh, some of John's final chapter off of the, the structure of this chapter. And then the plans are further interrupted by Mormont's declaration that they ride for Mance Raider, or John's speech that he's riding for Ramsey at the Shield Hall. All plans are thrown to chaos and our heroes, well, I guess, John's a hero, have to change their plans. But John and Chet resolve to carry out one part of their plan. They're going to kill Samwell and kill Ramsay. But oh no, things are thrown to chaos yet again. One one kills Sir Patrick. A horn blows and blows again at the fists. But nope, that ain't it. For the watch, the horn blows a third time. And John, of course, gets stabbed to death and feels only the cold. George does a great job of ratcheting tension up, distracting us, yet playing fair at the same time. And something I was recently researching is that George had said, like, a really good twist in the story is one that you can go back and read and you can see the steps that he's taken to set up along the way. So you realize that the author is playing fair with the readers. Even if you are reading it for the first time, you think that he's not playing fair with the readers. Because George is absolutely playing fair with the readers. You highlighted some of the points where, you know, we see the fact that the wildlings, or not the wildlings, but the white walkers are coming. But you don't know that for the first time you're reading it until you get to the very end of the chapter. So the twist that George pulls off in both John 13 from A Dance with Dragons and the Storm of Swords prologue is one where he's playing fair with readers. But you'd have to reread to see all the clues building up to that twist. Now, what a coincidence. We are a reread podcast after all. <laughs> so we can appreciate the kind of more the puzzle box aspect of it. And that is really what stands out about this chapter is just the the master clockwork narrative structure. Less so the kind of the mood you get to kind of sit back and indulge in with some of the other prologues. This is this is focused on on logistics. And most of this chapter is focused on Chet's mutiny. The who, what, where, when, why, and how of it. Starting with the who. As Chet's prologue begins, he's failing at hunting, alongside Small Paul and Lark the Sister Man. Paul alerts the reader to the conspiracy by asking why they have to kill Elsie Mormont. Why can't they just run off and leave each other be? It's the difference between desertion and murder. 
While you'll get executed for both in Westeros, the distinction still matters in terms of one's humanity. Paul just wants to survive. He doesn't want to hurt anyone. His kindness towards animals and helpless people, as we'll see with Sam, stands in contrast to Lark, a nasty piece of work who's always trying to make Chet's plan bigger, <laughs> bigger and bloodier than it already is. He wants to bring more people and also kill more people, including Paul himself. So they're like the angel and the devil on Chet's shoulders. Chet thinks of himself as more rational and practical than Lark. He is, but Lark reflects Chet's own bitter thirst for blood back at him. Paul is a reminder that not everyone chooses violence. Yeah, you're right that like Lark is just not that interesting, not the most interesting of villains in A Song of Ice and Fire. He's bloodthirsty and not terribly bright. But Small Paul is someone I, I like a fair bit, especially when we get to Sam's first chapter in A Storm of Swords. Though his second chapter when he returns is a white. Oof, that's, that's a creepy, terrifying moment. What Small Paul reminds me of, and I'm, I'm kind of wondering if George was basing this off of the character Lenny from uh, Steinbeck's novel of Mice and Men, a gentle giant who probably has some mental disabilities at work in him. And like Lenny, Small Paul can use his hands to kill. Chet tells us that Small Paul once hugged a wildling and killed him, and that he's planning on having Small Paul hug Mormont and Craster to death later in their, in his plot. As odious of a person as Chet is, I find this thing kind of particularly terrible because Chet wants Small Paul to take an act of intimacy, friendship, love, and twist it into murder. And I think that's one of the things about this that just kind of just rubs me a really, really wrong way. And I think should rub readers the wrong way too. All the while, Chet manipulates Small Paul into killing Mormont by telling him that Mormont will pursue them. At no point do we get any indication that Small Paul is really bought into the conspiracy to flee the fist of the first men? Yes, he wants to survive, but it kind of reads like the subtext is that Chet and Lark left out the reason why Mormont might pursue them. Like maybe the murders and the desertions are why Mormont would pursue them and just focused, um, focus his efforts and his thoughts on the fact that Mormont's pursuing them. And that's wrong. And that's why you have to kill Mormont right here and now. It raises the question of why Paul's with these guys at all. Lark answers his question about killing Mormont, which also conveniently explains things to us. Chet and Lark want to kill Mormont or he'll track them down after they escape and they want to escape because the wildlings are coming. This is a thread dangling from the end of John's chapters in the last book, when Egret said that Mance was marching down the milk water on the wall, that great moment at the end of John's chapters when you can hear the drumbeats rising behind her words. Unlike Corrin Halfhand, Thorin Smallwood made it back from his scouting mission alive. His men saw the wildlings on the move. What they saw is complicated. On one hand, there is the clear military threat. It's rare to see a dozen mounted wildlings, and Harma has 500. So not only have their numbers swelled under Mance, their raw numbers, but they've also started to fight differently to make different use of their numbers. On the other hand, the majority of Mance's followers are non-combatants, and they've brought pretty much everything they own with them. As John said, it's a whole people come together. This sets up the struggle over integrating the wildlings. Are they organized raiders or refugees? It's telling how the Watch reacts here. Chet sees only the military threat and thinks it's time to fall back on the wall. Thorin Smallwood, meanwhile, sees the civilian presence as a sign of weakness. He wants the Watch to attack. Thorin doesn't hide his contempt for wildlings, calling them a shambling horde of useless mouths who need to be sent howling back to their hovels. There's no humanity in it. Ironic, given the inhuman force on its way. Neither Thorin nor Chet ever stops to ask why the wildlings are fleeing their homes en masse. If they did, they might have been less blindsided by the army of the dead. And this is the status quo that John has to improve on as Lord Commander. 
Absolutely. I think it's incredibly telling that not a single person in the watch thinks, hey, maybe we should try and reach out to see why the wildlings are coming south, why they're all gathered together. For that matter, no one thinks maybe they should consider peace with the wildlings before going to war with them. I, I know um, I know the Augustinian, you know, just war principles aren't really at play in Westeros, but maybe they should because one of the aspects that kind of gets underplayed in Augustinian war principles is whether you have a chance of winning. Like you have to, a chance for victory is really important for one of the Augustinian principles of war. This is just one of those facets of the Night's Watch culture where the wildlings have been enemies for thousands of years and the Night's Watch can't get past their own institutional biases. Of course, there have actually been threats from north of the wall, kings beyond the wall before Mance Raider. And I think that institutional and historical knowledge is guiding the ideology of the Night's Watch leadership here. At the same time, this might be one of those places where gallantry, if you want to call it that, is outweighing practical sense. The Night's Watch has 300 brothers north of the wall, and the Wildling Vanguard, that is the forward line of Wildling cavalry screening the movement of the Wildlings to the wall, so not barely the whole force, outnumbers them, 500 to 300. That's to say nothing of the rest of the armed men behind the Vanguard, which we know to be in the, to number in the tens of thousands. Uh, we'll talk more about the military situation of it all towards the end of this podcast, but to focus on the political side here... This would call a wiser party to seek some sort of political compromise, negotiation, peace, maybe? Is that possible here, potentially? According to the Night's Watch, it's not, because the problem is that the Night's Watch doesn't know at this point that Mance Raider isn't seeking to come south to conquer the Seven Kingdoms. At least, that's not the primary reason why they're coming south. As rereaders, we know this, but Elsie Mormont does not. He views these wallings as an existential threat come to annihilate the Watch and invade the North. Now... I don't think the whole thing boils down to just mere miscommunication. As I said before, there are thousands of years of history, and there's also the personal experience of these officers who have been ranging or going north of the wall their entire lives. But as you were saying, it'll take someone living among the wildlings, learning why they're running south, and someone who is willing to understand them as, what are the wildlings if not people too? In a way, this prologue not only sets up the threat of the others and the mutiny that's coming at Craster's Keep, it sets up the necessity for John to be among the wildlings, eat with them, fight with them, to create his arc in A Dance with Dragons. Yeah, that's a great point. We usually think about this prologue purely in terms of setup for the, the annihilation that occurs at the end, but it's also uh, these, these kind of longer character environmental problems that the characters are going to have to deal with long after this attack on the fist is over. And yeah, I mean, it's... When you talk about kind of where this this disconnect comes from, it's I think characters like Thorin or people like Thorin Smallwood have this assumption that that empathy and military might are are opposites, and you, you if if you are working on one, you're sacrificing the other. But I think we see here, and I think we also see in real life that that empathy and understanding your environment and the people around you is absolutely crucial to military success. That Thorin's attitude towards the wildlings is not just personally odious; it's bad for the mission. Because it, he's, it's demonstrating he doesn't really know much about his opponent and is not considering them in the larger context. And the Night's Watch definitely suffers for that. Unfortunately, Thorin is beginning to persuade other officers to attack. Chet believes this to be rank madness, not without reason, and so began planning his mutiny. George takes us through the logistics of his plan. They're going to kill not only Mormont, but Blaine from the Shadow Tower. So that command passes to Otten Withers, an old done man who wants to fall back on the wall. He probably won't try to track down the mutineers, and even if he wanted to, they're going to kill the trackers Bannon and Dywin to prevent that. Chet recruited 14 men, enough to do what needs to be done, but not so many as to risk giving it away. 
He starved the dogs to later set them loose among the horses to cover for their escape. They prepared food and, and they planned to uh, follow a game trail east. Overall, I think it's a pretty solid plan if George had allowed them to get away with it. On reread, it's so appropriate that the chapter starts with Chet failing to track and kill a bear. He's planning on killing the old bear, Elsie Mormont, and he fails at that too. Ah, literature. Yes. You know, the payoff, <laughs> set up and payoff right there. It's brilliant and beautiful. And it's a chapter where all the plans are about to go awry, not just Chet's, but also Mormont's and everyone else at the Night's Watch and really the Wildlings too, overall in A Storm of Swords. Their plan to come south is going to go quite awry as we're going to find out towards the end of this book. But, you know, ultimately it comes up against that supernatural force of the others. How long would Chet lived when the others came to Crasher's Keep. Was his plan his his plan is to go to Crasher's Keep and take up residence there? How long would the others let him live? Now, the show interestingly had a version of the mutineers continuing the practice of sacrificing male children to the others that we saw in season four. Is that something that Chet would do? Hero that he is, absolutely, dude. Like this guy is a hundred percent in favor of doing things like that. Chet wants to be the new Craster, a lord of his own keep of slaves that will birth his children and do all the manual work. And he'll sacrifice his own male children to remain a lord of his own keep. Is there a Stannis Shireen parallel there? Now, a fair number of folks think Stannis will sacrifice Shireen to save the world, one child against a million and such that Stannis will later say in, in a later Davos chapter in A Storm of Swords. But I think, and we're going to get into this significantly when we get to those chapters, I think that's buying into Stannis' bullshit a bit too much. As we'll discuss in Davos' later chapters in Storm, Stannis' motivation to sacrifice one child to save a million rests upon a single foundation, and that is a foundation and is in service of Stannis atop the Iron Throne. That said, Chet doesn't even have the save-the-world veneer for his thirst for power, and that's all wrapped up in his backstory. Yeah, so much for Chet's mutiny, but what about Chet? He is pure alienation. He hates absolutely everyone, himself included, and has never encountered anything worth believing in. His POV is like a flashlight shining on a rotting foundation. He's taken nothing but shit and was made in its image. The dominant tones of Chet's POV are resentment and rage. And my shoulders hunch reading this stuff. It's, it's incredibly effective. George uses alliteration and repeated words to kind of lock you into to, to Chet's mindset. At the beginning of the chapter, he's going on about the big black bitch. That's what he calls the dog. And he's calling everything bloody. And he's talking about these boils, all these ba-ba-ba-ba sounds that make you kind of hunch your shoulders <laughs> and feel like you're, you're trapped. It's uh, Everything is about this this dull, throbbing anger. Chet's inner monologue is an endless narrative of all the injustices done to him. He doesn't really differentiate between them it's all just kind of one as such while chet hates the highborns who sent him to the wall and get drunk on words instead of wine he takes his anger out on those who can't fight back starting in this chapter with his poor dogs at heart chet's a bully he's got nothing but contempt for small paul thanks to his probable disability and harbors prejudices for other cultures even among his allies lark is a fish breath sisterman they speak a wet girly tongue in tyrosh then there's his lethal hatred of Sam, which George uses as a threat throughout the chapter, this rising dread that, oh, Chet's going to kill Sam. Right from the start of the chapter, Chet's reminding us of the one thing we know him for, being the guy John muscled aside to make room for Sam. But Chet doesn't just resent Sam for taking his post as a highborn. Chet loathes Sam in the same way Randall did, for being fat, weak, not manly enough. 
Randall said he would enjoy hunting Sam down and ripping his heart out. Chet imagines slitting Sam's throat with glee. Now, Randall may believe he needs a more martial heir, and Chet may justify killing Sam because of his faculty with the messaging birds, but in both cases, they are motivated by a disgust for difference and a thirst for blood. The bitter joke of Chet is that he's adopted the worldview of the elites he hates so much. The legitimacy of his grievances withers when you learn what he actually wants out of life and what he's been willing to do to get it. As Chet says, he is the clever one. He worked out all the logistics, and he keeps peace among the conspirators. There's that part when Lark and Paul are about to fight over the bird, and Chet kind of separates them and makes them see logic, at least for the moment. And there's another kind of implied joke here in that Chet's skills could have actually made him very useful to the Night's Watch. What's going to happen after his master plan, though? What happens after the logistics? What does Chet want? Lark wants to go home to the sisters. Chet knows they'll be executed for deserters south of the Wall. That leaves Essos as an option, sailing to Tyrosh with Alo Lophand, but Chet doesn't know their language, and anyway, he doesn't have a trade to practice there. This is where we learn more about Chet's life before the Night's Watch. It's a view of Westeros from the bottom. Chet's dad wasn't just poor. His only source of income was selling leeches to maesters, walking into the local ponds and walking out covered with leeches. And it's hard to imagine a more blunt symbol than someone putting food on the table only by allowing leeches to suck his blood. Chet was taught scarcity and brutality. When he burst a leech once by accident, his father beat him bloody. There was no land to work, no skills to attain, no way to cozy up to anyone powerful, no future. It was a bleak existence, fitting the tone of this chapter. Chet has had nothing but bad options in his life, yet has still managed to make things worse, always picking the worst option available. And we see that at work in this chapter, where I understand his fear of the wildlings, but he's managed to come up with this horrible, bloody plan that's just going to get a bunch more people killed. Uh, back in his uh, his childhood, Chet picked flowers for the most promiscuous girl in town. He keeps thinking in this chapter about how the boils covering his face make him red with anger, and he tells us it's always turned women off. So when this girl rejected him, he killed her. It was sweet, he thinks, just like how he looks forward to killing Sam. It was for this crime that Chet was sent to the wall. It's this twisted echo of chivalric values, which is something George loves doing. Chet wooed his lady, but then murdered her, and has joined a warrior order, not willingly out of devotion, out of some need for redemption, but unwillingly as punishment. So much for the stories and songs, Chet thinks. What's his model? Where's he going to go? Craster's Keep. <laughs> That's how Chet thinks it ought to work. One man outside the power structure, ruling with an iron fist over as many women as possible. He'll take over there. Sam also thinks of himself as ugly and unlovable, but he sympathizes with the powerless because of it. That's how he reacted to Craster's Keep. He was like, I have to get these women out of there, not I have to take over. This is what I mean when I say Chet was made in the image of the elites he hates so much. There's this hilarious bit where Chet is affronted that Lord Walder Frey didn't come to judge him personally. First of all, Walder was probably too old even then to go just traveling about his lands. <laughs> But the point is, is that Chet's just not important enough to the power structure to merit Walder's presence. And Chet knows that, and he hates it. But, as I said back in Clash, Walder Frey himself is a lot like Craster, Chet's role model. Walder has set up his own kind of little rape factory of the type that Chet loves so much. So really, Chet wants to be like the people he blames for everything. He blames for his life turning out this way. He wants to be like them. That dynamic is unfortunately true to life as well as fiction, in the modern day as well as ye old medieval times. Chet's been made to lick the boot. 
and now he wants to wear it. He's at the bottom of the class structure, so the only power he can possess is in terms of gender, power over women. It really is power that turns Chet on, not sex itself. He says he's slept with sex workers in Molestown, but we never hear any details about it. He thinks it, it wasn't the knife he wanted to stick in Bessa, but he clearly seems to have gotten off on it. It was a deadly penis substitute. Chet longs for power so badly that he thinks of Craster's keep as merely a good start. Why not be a king in his own right? If his murder of Bessa was an inversion of romantic songs and stories, Chet's ambition for a crown parodies all the actual kings and queens. This is what the rise to power looks like, stripped of all pretense of justice or romance, reduced to the petty delusions of someone who just loves the idea of controlling other people, having never possessed it, but for one violent moment that he just replays over and over. And there's something pathetic about that and something pathetic in Chet himself as a person. You never sympathize with him as a reader. At least I fucking hope you don't. But you kind of pity him at the same time. Like you said, sex for him is not about the act itself or the intimacy or relationships and things like that. It's about power. Chet has seen the world as a power dynamic, the strong control and manipulate the weak. So if he has the power, he can do whatever he wants. You talked about the echo of Walter Frey found in Chet, and I think that's such a great point because Walter Frey is very old, ugly, and yet because he's the Lord of the Crossing, he creepily and evilly has a 16-year-old wife who doesn't seem all that into old Lord Walter Frey. Remember how Walter described his wife to Catelyn back in A Game of Thrones? Save your sweet words, my lady, sweet words I get from my wife. Did you see her? 16 she is, a little flower, and her honey's only for me. I wager she gives me a son by this time next year. Perhaps I'll make him heir. Wouldn't that boil the rest of them? That's the type of power that Chet desires here. The power to have sex with underage girls despite having boils and being ugly. Because sex for Chet is power. He's learned from the very worst of nobles in Westeros. Ultimately, that's what's driving him to aim his rage at Craster's Keep. He wants to rule just like Craster, just like Waterfrey, with a bevy of women as his chattel slaves, doing his work, birthing his children, and he can fuck whenever he wants to. It's hideous, it's horrifying, but you see why Chet is the way that he is. George doesn't exonerate or justify him, but you understand and pity him ultimately, because he is ultimately a piteous character in the story. He's a, he's a rat in a maze, and I certainly wouldn't want to be in between him and his cheese, I guess. But, you know, he's he's not the one who made the maze. And I think that's something that, that George is, is, is building up throughout this chapter. So we, we have this kind of dread about this 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 violent man, about what he's going to do. But we might remember that there are, there are other characters that we, we met in this uh, plot line, this storyline back in Clash of Kings, back when these were John chapters, the great ranging beyond the wall that we left folks at the Fist of the First Men. So when these conspirators return to the Fist, they find some of their brothers practicing archery. Among them, Samuel Tarley. Again, we see how Chet's mind works. He thinks about how he loved working for Maester Aemon because Aemon never beat him. And that's a reminder of the world that shaped Chet, in which the best case scenario for him, the best life possible, was just not getting hit. And yet what he learned from that was how to hit. The other Night's Watchmen are encouraging Sam. Gran and Dolores Edge show him how to hold the bow. They make him keep going when he complains. They're picking up where John left off. It's especially moving in Gren's case because we know that he started off as John's enemy. Gren certainly has not had an easy life. And while Dolores Ed is highborn, he seems to have seen his share of awful shit. Yet, here they are, cheering Sam on. 
And here Chet is, going out of his way to mock Sam and tell him he'll be dead meat when the wildlings arrive. The contrast highlights how Chet is not just choosing to rebel against his own circumstances, he's making things actively worse for others. He's got nothing but contempt for their friendships Mm -hmm. because Chet doesn't believe in community. He doesn't believe in bonds with other people. As Chet moves among the men, he's subtly checking in on his fellow conspirators. Any sign of guilt or fear, anything that hints at human frailty, Chet sees as a potential weakness, someone he might have to kill. The Brotherhood of the Night's Watch is falling apart into the dog-eat-dog logic of Westeros and reality as a whole. Exactly. And I hate, actually I don't, to keep bringing up how Chet serves as a microcosm to the larger political picture of Westeros, but that's very present here in this chapter, especially this portion of the chapter. Later in this book, Tywin Lannister will callously couch his decision not to send any aid to the Night's Watch in this manner. The wildlings will flood the north, his father finished, and the Starks and Grages will have another enemy to contend with. They no longer wish to be subject to the Iron Throne, it would seem. So by what right do they look to the Iron Throne for aid? King Rob and King Balin both claim the north. Let them defend it if they can. And if not, this Mance Raider might even prove a useful ally. Like Chet, Tywin views life through the prism of the weak and the strong with no concept of community or the greater whole. And if we use the throne show as a guide to how things would play out in the books, dangerous thought I know, Chet serves as the potential Cersei-like figure who is only looking to gain advantage over his enemies by not aiding the North when the White Walkers invade. You've been talking so well about how the feudal structure trickles down to the lowest echelons of society, and I think Chet embodies this dynamic so well with his interactions with Samwell. But just as there are many highborn, Tywin, Walter, Randall, who divide the world into the weak and the strong, there is some with a more morally noble perspective, even if it's not quite what I call wisdom. I think that's a perfect way of putting it. Yeah, that's L.C. Mormont. He's just trying to stand up against the tide. He calls the Night's Watch together on the Fist of the First Men to tell them that he has agreed to attack the Wildlings. And we'll talk more about the specifics of his plan later on in the episode. In the moment, George constructs a dialogue between Mormont and the Mutineers. The L.C. puts on a brave face, saying that their advantage over the Wildlings is in the element of surprise. In the privacy of his thoughts, Chet shoots back that two scouting parties haven't returned, so if anyone's been taken captive, the Wildlings probably do know where the watch is, and I'm sure Mormont has considered that as well. We, the reader, first time through, we don't know for sure what the Wildlings have found out. Chet's point seems pretty sound, and feeds into the fear spreading among the rest. We hear someone saying, there are thousands, someone else says, we'll die. And Mormont, to his credit, doesn't pretend otherwise. We might all die. That's why they dress us in black, he says, built in funeral shrouds. He calls upon them all to raise their swords and repeat their words. It's an ironic moment on multiple levels. We know that some of the brothers are faking it, and even those who are sincere are about to face a battle they never expected. Yet, as Chet thinks, maybe the words are enough to convince. How do we hold ourselves together in these moments? What do we cling to? As Chet sleeps, going over his master plan again and again, Bess's face rises up before his eyes. Part of him whispers to her more tenderly than he ever did in life, thinking of the hope with which he picked flowers. And yeah, the point isn't that this, like, redeems Chet for what he's done or anything like that. (laughs) The point is that he can only feel this way in his subconscious. When he wakes up, he wondered where that came from, why his heart is pounding like that. Usually he only thinks of how sweet it was to kill her. Chet buries his more mournful self down deep to avoid facing the horror of what he did to her. But Chet is not going to be able to keep the unquiet dead at bay forever. They are now quite literally on their way. 
I think that's brilliant. I think I'd never seen that before that Chet's on the dead people are rising in Chet's mind the same way that the, the whites are rising and are about to come to the fist of the first spin. That's another great touch on, on George's part. Again, hashtag literature. There is, you know, something like a shred of humanity in Chet that we don't see with Walter, Frey, or, or with Craster. Or perhaps we don't, we can't see that due to them not having point of view status. It's interesting because, you know, George usually writes complex, fascinating, gray characters as he likes to talk about. But Chet is not one such gray, fascinating, complex character. He's motivated by his grievances and acts according to those grievances. And those grievances are the cornerstone of his identity. His plans and actions flow from that grievance and alienation. But even if Chet ain't the model of Song of Ice and Fire character, there is value in his perspective. Some people are not terribly complex in the real world. Sometimes real people are motivated by grievance and their aims are kind of evil, ultimately. And what Chet is planning is evil, but fate fucks with the innocent and the guilty alike. When Craster, when Craster, when Chet sees the faces float up at him, it rings through emotionally for Chet. He feels guilty over his murder, even if he tries to rationalize that Bessa had it coming for laughing at him. Chet is absolutely an evil man, but I'm not sure he's exactly a psychopath. He feels a deep, deep guilt over the things that he's done. And I think that's an interesting touch because not every evil person that we encounter in the real world or bad people that we encounter in the real world or bad people we encounter in the stories are just simply psychopaths or sociopaths or have something that is limiting their their ability to feel remorse or guilt or, or anything like that. Chet, I don't think, is actually a psychopath ultimately. But of course, like you were saying, him feeling guilty doesn't exonerate him in any circumstance. Moreover, he justifies his murder and sexism right after he starts to feel guilty about it. So he just presses that guilt right back down. So Chet, not great, Bob. Not great. Oh, the Victorian comparison definitely comes to mind here in terms of the little sparks of humanity we see in Victorian's POV that he he then immediately puts out like a candle because that would, you know, acknowledging those would require a, a lot more painful thing, feelings beneath those and spending a lot of time on those and they don't want to do that. So they just they feel a little spark of it and then they move on. And then and that just kind of uh, contributes to their overall misery. But really, of course, what everyone remembers about this prologue is how it ends. Chet is woken up by falling snow. In retrospect, it's the clearest sign yet that the cold gods are on their way. But snow is also a mundane weather condition, which is how it registers to Chet. It's going to make them easy to track and make it harder for them to find and ride their game trail. They're screwed. For Chet, it's just more evidence that the deck is stacked against him. No crown for the leechman's son, he thinks. The snow took it all like Jon Snow did. Chet immediately redirects his despair into anger, because anger is what he knows. It's what makes him feel like he can take control of his life. So with his master plan in ruins, Chet is determined to at least kill Sam. That's what he cares about the most, his revenge power fantasy scenario. Chet no longer cares about the consequences of that, which would probably be execution on the spot. As far as he's concerned, he's a dead man walking. <laughs> And he's right, of course, he just doesn't know why. The horns start blowing, and this is really where the structure of this prologue shines. With every new piece of information, our understanding of what's happening changes, and so does our emotional reaction. It's like a masterclass in the rule of three, George showing us exactly how to lead your audience to a satisfying conclusion. When the horns first blow, we sigh with relief. Chet's been interrupted before he can kill Sam. And as he tells us, one horn means brothers returning. Chet's worried that John might be back. 
we know better, but Chet also thinks of Jarman Buckwell, the third scout leader. Maybe it's him, we think, so George has his bases covered. Then the horns blow again. Our relief fades, replaced by suspense for an upcoming battle. Two blasts means enemies, Chet says. It means wildlings. To him, those are one and the same. But there were enemies older and fouler than our fellow man beyond the wall. The Night's Watch remembers that on a subconscious level, like the rest of Westeros with their stories of the Long Night. That's why Garrod wanted a fire in the first prologue. That's why some random watchmen wanted to burn the bodies they found in Book 1. And that's why they have a third horn blast ready to go, waiting all these years. I love, maybe my favorite little detail, my favorite moment in this whole chapter is that right before the shit hits the fan, Chet realizes something is off. According to Thorne Smallwood, the wildlings aren't going to be honest for 10 days. And then that third horn sounds, and all the built-up tension of the chapter explodes. It's even more impressive on reread because you can appreciate the exquisite setup and payoff of it all. The cold winds like a crying baby, like the baby's sacrifice to the others, the animals flinching and fleeing, the snow itself. The monster was there in the margins, as you say, all along. But we didn't see it any more than Chet anticipated that third horn blast. Why would he? As Sam says, they haven't heard it for thousands of years. Only the reader has seen the White Walkers at work back in book one. We've been waiting ever since to see them again. As the Game of Thrones has unfolded, we've known the others are coming for them all. Winter is coming. So it's the satisfaction of watching George's plan come together, coupled with the dread of watching everything else come apart. (laughs) We've gone from relief at the first horn blast to suspense at the second to terror at the third. Chet called Sam a coward, but now he's the one who pisses his pants. It's so visceral. You feel it physically. You feel that fear. You feel it tingling in the small of your back before scorching up your spine. You hear a scream rise in your ears before being cut off in an instant. This is the kind of moment I read horror for, when the mechanics of tension and release feel like an out-of-body experience. It's so effective in part because of all the misdirection. Not only did that preserve the shock until this moment, but now we have a sense of how everything pales in context with the army of the dead. Chet's mutiny, Mormont's strategy, the wildlings on the march. It's like the bottom just fell out from all of it, and we're watching it sink into the void. And this is how George makes you feel throughout A Storm of Swords. The people change, the places change, but this sickening exhilaration is a constant. It's what people love about A Storm of Swords, and I I can't wait to experience it all over again with you and everyone else listening. Oh, I got to say it one time since this is our first episode back, but amen, brother. Yeah, that gets me motivated for this book. You know, uh, a lot of folks don't particularly enjoy Chet's point of view, and I sympathize with those readers, even agree with them a little. Martin does not try to make Chet relatable in the same way that he does with Will and Crescent before him. And I think that's part of the point here. Bad things are about to happen to a very bad person. And yet, they are also happening to good people too, like Samuel Tarly, like Dolores Ed, like Ren, like Elsie Mormont. That's the subtle brilliance of this chapter. It's a microcosm of what the long night will be to Westeros come the winds of winter next week or the week after that. Now, I've heard it said that true justice rains down punishment on the guilty while vengeance rains down punishment on the guilty and innocent alike. That's kind of also what the long night does too. 
The others don't care if you're Chet or Samuel Tarly. They only care if you're alive, and they will snuff out the lives of the innocent and guilty alike. You know, I'd, to be honest, I'd absolutely piss myself too if I knew the others were coming for me. But for my part, being outside of the apocalypse that's coming, I sure am glad to be finally launching into a storm of swords with you, sir, and with all of you who are listening and or watching this episode. So many more chapters to go. Uh, I'm just thrilled. It's going to be great. So to uh, Mm -hmm. shift now into a foreshadowing and groundwork. So Chet is planning betrayal and he's associated with leeches. On Riri, that feels like some strong foreshadowing for uh, Roose Bolton's role in The Red Wedding. That we're, we're, uh, Another prominent case of someone associated with leeches pulling off a of betrayal. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think that this chapter does many things of setting many up, many plot points in A Storm of Swords, the book itself, and also later books in, in the series. But this one felt very strong on this reread that this helps to set up the Red Wedding, specifically the leeches and how, you know, when we were in Arya's chapters in A Clash of Kings, we had Arya witnessing Bruce Bolton being leeched. Perhaps those leeches were even provided to Bruce Bolton by Chet's father, provided that Chet's father is still alive in some capacity. But yeah, that betrayal angle works really well with both Bruce Bolton and Chet here. And of course, though Chet's specific plan is not going to pay off here in this chapter, we will find out that, yes, indeed, Chet, Elsie uh, Mormon is about to get, um, is about to get knifed by his, by his, uh, his own men, similar to how Rob Stark is about to get knifed by his own man, namely Bruce Bolton. Uh, so this, this is something that's come up a, a fair amount in fan discourse, but Small Paul is described as thick as a castle wall by Lark the Sisterman. Additionally, Small Paul is rather large, as we find out. He's a big dude. There is someone else in A Song of Ice and Fire who is also quite tall and who is also described as thick as a castle wall. And that person, of course, is Quaith. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's Dunk the Lunk, thick as a castle wall that we, uh, we, we, from the Dunkin' Egg novellas. And of course, thick as a castle law, law, thick as a castle wall is something that Dunk has been told by his former master and also thinks about for himself. So I think that may, a lot of fans think that's evidence that Small Paul is a descendant of Sir Dunk the Lunk. And, and I like this theory. It's not very important to the overall plot of A Song of Ice and Fire since Small Paul is sadly going to die in Samuel's first chapter. But he is, uh, him being a descendant of, of Dunk the Lunk is a good tie into the Duncan Egg novellas, which of course, one was written right, uh, right before Storm of Sources published, that is The Hedge Knight. Yeah, I love tracing the connections to Dunk because, of course, that comes up from multiple characters. You see that also with uh, with Hodor, with Brienne, possibly the Cleganes as well. And they all take the Dunk archetype in different directions. You know, Small Paul has his innate kindness and in looking out for the powerless, as we're going to see with Sam. But unfortunately, unlike Dunk, he's just he doesn't have the the relationship to the power structure. He doesn't have the luck of time and place to get in with someone someone friendly like Egg or Brailer Breakspear. There's there's no room for that. So yeah, Small Paul will, will sadly be among many who die when uh, when the attack gets off in full. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned once or twice as we went through this chapter this uh, third scouting party led by Jarman Buckwell that Elsie Mormont set out. Here it's mostly a red herring. So you have the, the the possibility of them coming back before you realize it's the White Walkers attacking. But Jarman Buckwell does eventually make it all the way back to Castle Black. And he's the one who tells everyone that John is riding with the Wildlings now. His scouts glimpsed that, so that immediately puts John on edge as he has to deal with his reputation as potentially being a traitor. So George does make use of him after uh, after leaving him dangling. You, you can kind of see like George's like thought process here. Like you'd be like, okay, so I need the wild I need the Night's Watch to all think that John is a traitor. So how do I do that successfully? Because John is going to be coming with the wildlings and he's going to separate from Egrip and the rest of the party. Right. So what am I going to do that? Um, oh, 
fuck, yeah, that's right. Jarman Buckwell is absolutely out scouting, uh, and he sees Jon Snow riding with the wildlings here. So it's it's a nice way that George kind of brings the different threads, uh, the, even the super minor threads like Jarman Buckwell being out on on a uh, on, on a ranging to uh, to the fore. And I think it's a great way that George writes these stories that he he has to solve the internal problems of a Song of Ice and Fire, and he finds interesting, unique ways to do that, like having Jarman Buckwell observe Jon Snow riding with the wildlings. One other element of this chapter that, that stands out coming back after a feast for crows is those, those horn blasts. The three horn blasts that, as Sam tells us, is a Night's Watch signal for the others. And what we see at the King's Moot when, when Euron is announced is also three horn blasts. Three horn blasts on Dragonbinder. So I do think hmm. that George might be setting up a possible connection between Euron and the White Walkers there. I've, sp- I've said eh, a fair amount about Euron Greyjoy over the years and, and possible <laughs> connections therein, but that's, that's something we'll definitely have to keep a watch for signs of that when, when we get to his introduction in the Feast for Crows. But I think George might have been subtly calling back to set up that connection. I agree. I, I think that's absolutely what George is doing with Euron Greyjoy, signifying his role in connection to the others through the use of the horn blasts. Because this is the, I, so far in the series, this is the only time we hear three horn blasts uh, signifying the others. And the next time we hear three horn blasts is, of course, when Euron Greyjoy announces his. Uh, his claim to the to the Seastone chair from from a feast for crows it's it's brilliant and I think it's a great way that George does uh, does some excellent work to to show um, Euron Greyjoy's probable in my opinion connection to the others and it's something I'm eagerly looking forward to exploring in in the Winds of Winter and of course you don't even need to read the Winds of Winter you just need to read uh, Emmett's Eldritch Apocalypse uh, theory on his his blog which is basically spells out how the rest of the Song of Ice and Fire is going to be written so yeah just to read that instead. So, uh, moving on into our uh, theory and discussion portion for the episode, uh, we uh, kind of alluded to it earlier, but Mormont has this plan for attacking the wildlings. He is encouraged by Thorin Smallwood and those others who want, want to attack, and he lays it out to the Night's Watchmen on the Fist of the Firstmen here in this chapter. That, of course, is kind of immediately made moot by the White Walkers showing up to attack. But it, but since George spends a fair amount of time on that strategy, it opens up the question of, of would that strategy have worked? And I, so I wanted to ask you that because, of course, you, you do such a great job on military matters in A Song of Ice and Fire. And I wanted to also ask you how it, how do you think Mormont's plan compares to Stannis's eventual victory over the Wildlings? Because we do see the Wildlings defeated uh, by, by a cavalry force later in the Storm of Swords. So I, was, I, was, I wanted to know what you thought the, the kind of similarities and differences there were. But, but I mean, first question, start with First question to start with, though, would, would Mormont's strategy have worked? No, this would have never worked. Thanks for listening, everyone. That's going to wrap us up for this podcast. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Yes. <laughs> That'll take care of it. That'll take care of it. I, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. But guys, seriously, Mormont's strategy is fucking bonkers and bad and dumb, like just so terrible all, all the way around. But George, you know, does a good job because he shrouds it in just enough plausibility that readers might think, hey, this might work, right? Right? No, no, it's not going to work. From what I gather from the references in this chapter is that the concept of the operation is this. They're going to attack the wildling column at various points, split up their cavalry force, use the speed of attack to kill the wildlings and drive them into disarray. Seems logical. Seems like it'll work, right? No, there are many problems with this approach. I'm just going to highlight a couple here. The first problem is that this assumes that the Wildling Vanguard is all the Night's Watch would have to worry about. They only just need to bypass Harm Dogswoods, Dogshead's 500 uh, Vanguard people that are in the, at, at the front of the column. But as we find out in a later John chapter, that's not how the Wildlings are arrayed. 
The king beyond the wall was doing all he could, yet the wildlings remained hopelessly undisciplined, and that made him them vulnerable. Here and there within the league's, league's long snake that was their line of march were warriors as fierce as any in the watch. But a good third of them were grouped at either the end of the column, and Harmadog's head's van, and the savage rearguard with its giants, aurochs, and fireflingers. Another third rode with Mance himself near the center, guarding the, wain, the wagons and sledges and dog carts that held the great bulk of the host's provisions and supplies, all that remained of the last summer harvest. The rest, divided into small bands under the likes of Rattleshirt, Jarl, Torment Giants Bay, and the Weeper, served as outriders, foragers, and whips galloping up and down the column endlessly to keep it moving in more or less an orderly fashion. What that means is that Mansweater had riders outside of the main column to scout for any potential attack, as well as riders and warriors within the actual column itself. So it wasn't just like Mormon had to just bypass Harma's vanguard at the front. There'd be wildling warriors and riders around the entire column of people. And the outriders and foragers would probably find the Night's Watch before they attacked or alert the wildlings of any impending attack before the cavalry could get there. John does note the indiscipline of the wildlings, and a lot of them would probably end up getting killed by the attacking Night's Watchmen. But I think the sheer numbers alone would edge out any surprise attack by mounted Night's Watchmen. Moreover, the wildlings are, you know, animately familiar with the terrain having fucking lived there. The Watchmen are outlanders in these parts, only occasionally ranging up here. The best analogy that I was, as I was thinking about this is that if you're on a long distance trip to somewhere you've never been, you're kind of driving through a place, your Waze app isn't picking up a signal, but you don't know the town where the best Wendy's is, the best routes to get there. But the people who live in that town absolutely know everything about that town and how to get to the various places in it. Meanwhile, the Mormont's plan has no real specifics, you know, things that are important for any operation. They're going to divide smaller units and hit the wildlings at various points along the main line. Where? How? When? What is, is, there, is there a plan here? Is there an actual plan? No, there's no fucking plan. Does Mormont have a location picked where they're going to strike? I mean, kind of. Mormont wants to hit the wildlings at the foothills of the Frost Fangs, but is that a good place to lay an ambush? Maybe. I was always told that the first recon is a map recon, but that's the first, not the last. You actually need to get eyes on the objective prior to launching an attack. But also, you know, maybe not. The Rangers sent out haven't returned yet, so they're going with institutional knowledge rather than what's truly waiting for them in the foothills. How are they going to attack? Are they going to phase into the battle? Are they going to be coming all at once or in separate in separate columns? God damn it, Moron, put some fucking details into your rapport. And when? There's vague mention that the wildlings are 10 days away, but when is everyone supposed to attack? You gotta get specific, Mormon. I hate you. You are a no-go at the station. Major minus, Ranger. But more importantly than anything else is that the wildlings aren't driven south to simply invade the north and conquer it. Their driving motivation is something called survival. They have banded together under Mance Ritter to survive the invasion by the others. If the choice is to mass together and fight back with the chance of dying or to disperse and definitely die at the hands of the others, the choice is not that difficult. But that brings up the question as to why Stannis' plan of attack was successful, as you're alluding to in your questions, when this Night's Watch plan is shit. There are some surface-level similarities between the two plans of attack, though. I mean, Mormont planned to divide his force into smaller elements to attack at various points, which is similar to Stannis' plan to attack in three waves. Moreover, Stannis and the LC are way outnumbered by the Wildlings, but those are surface-level similarities. The differences are quite striking when you get deeper into the specifics in the text. The first thing that Stannis does is that he doesn't just come shuffling into the battle by himself. He brings Cotter Pike and the rangers who know the woods around the wall for the attack. In fact, Samuel later describes the terrain they advance to Mance Raider as quote-unquote ranger roads. 
And in this scenario, I'd also wager that the wildlings are less familiar with the woods and area in and around Castle Black due to the nearby presence of the rangers in the woods. You know, they probably don't come that close to the wall all that often because, you know, there are people there who might want to kill them. That seems like um bad. But that seems bad for them that they would not know that. But Cotter Pike and the rest of the rangers in the Night's Watch from East Watch by the Sea would know the area better. Meanwhile, Stannis actually phased his attack in. He timed his attacks so that the wildlings were engaged in one area before another prong of the attack fell. And then when more of the wildlings were engaged in two separate areas, the third prong of the attack fell when Stannis himself charged into the main line of the wildlings and specifically attacked Mance Raiders right by Mance Raiders' tent. Finally, and I know this will come as a big shock to many people, but there is this thing called a big fucking giant wall. That is called the wall that was in front of Vance Raider, which meant that one avenue of retreat counterattack was unavailable for the wildlings to use. In the acclaimed Total War series, they would call this the hammer and anvil strategy with the wall serving as the hard stand for Stannis and his army to hammer the wildlings against. Anyways, we are, I'm both at the same time, are going to talk a lot about the Battle of the Wall in about 15 to 16 months or so. So suffice to say that this conversation is over. I conclude with Mormont. Day one recycle from Ranger School. Stannis, submit your application for Best Ranger. I know some of you, maybe like five or six of you are going to get this reference, but it is a reference. Hashtag analysis, arrest my case. I, I love that because I was when I was thinking about what's wrong with Mormont's plan, I, you know, I kind of fall back on the wrong the one offered in the text. Chet's thinking that they definitely know we're here. So this element of surprise you're talking about being key to it, that's, that's definitely going to fall apart. But I hadn't considered also, yeah, the environmental factors, of course, that, that the wildlings know this area much better than the rangers. So when uh, Thorin Smallwood talks about if they chase us, we'll lead them on a merry dance. That's not likely if you don't know the terrain. The wildlings are more likely to catch up with you at that point. And then, yeah, of course, it comes back to the to motivation and empathy and understanding that that they're, they've come all at once because they're they're – they're going to get south of the wall or die trying. So even if you attack them successfully, they're not going to flee and go howling back to their hovels, as Thorin Smallwind says. They're going to fight and die probably to the last gasp. And the terrain for that is just not as uh, strong for that on, on, the, on the watch's behalf as with as with Stannis's later fight at the wall. Which yeah, of course, yeah, he has that um, a much stronger strategic mind, but also a better hand to play with when he's got the wall that he can just shove him right up against. And it's um. I guess it's inevitable, yeah, that as the wildlings march south, they just get less and less familiar with the territory until they're on they're on the watch's turf when it all finally comes apart. And that's, yeah, we'll have a lot more to say uh, about about uh, the end of uh, John's chapter, John's 10th chapter, when, when Stannis shows up, because that is one of the best moments in the series, for sure. I am so eager to to hear your thoughts about this, because I know you've, you've had some discussions on, on Twitter back in the day about whether, you know, this was... Stannis's attack is justified or not, or whether he's attacking like a, a band of refugees, whether he's attacking a militarily, a, like a, an, a legitimate military target, or whether it's, you know, civilians and people, or whether it's like both at the same time. And I think it's it's fascinating. I, I, I'm not going to spoil what we're going to talk about when we get to, you know, John's John 10, you know, again, 15 to 16 months down the road. But uh, it's, it's something I'm, I'm really curious about. I, I think, you know, you, you could talk about the tactics here, but at the same time, level when you think about the overall strategy why it's wrong maybe it's the fact that the wildlings are people too you know maybe as i alluded to earlier that maybe peace and allowing the wildlings to come south of the wall is the better option and and i know i get it that i I get it that there's that institutional knowledge that the that the night's watch has about the wildlings that they are the enemies the enemies that they know but at the same time you you do 
and you do see this, and this is this is the brilliance of A Storm of Swords, that you start to see the Wildlings not just as a band of raiders and as the bad guys of the story. You actually start to see them as human beings. And, you know, the as we're going to find out in John's first chapter, you know, Mance Raider is not who we expect him to be. And, you know, John is going to observe all of these things in the Wildling camp, all of the people playing and playing music and eating and having a community together. And you start to, I start to question like, oh, this is the people that Stannis attacked. The one that everyone gets all pumped about when, when Stannis is coming through saying, Stannis, Stannis, Stannis. But he's like charging through, you know, civilians at the same time. So, I mean, it's something we're going to talk about at significant length, you know, later in the Storm of Swords. But it's something I'm excited about talking with you, sir. Absolutely. I think it's a deliberately ambiguous moment with so many great things going on. and just lets you know the difficulties of perspective, as John says to, to Egret a little later in this book, that we look up at the same stars and see such different things. And I think you already see that in this chapter, and we'll get another reminder of it for sure when Stannis shows up at the wall. Can't wait. So I think that is going to wrap up our first episode for A Storm of Swords and our first episode back. Again, thank you so much for your patience on waiting for these episodes to restart again. I Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, thank you for both of our heart, bottom of our hearts, really. And we're just so excited to be back doing the Storm of Swords with you all. It's an absolute pleasure to start these things again. I, I get, I'm already excited about getting to the next chapter, and the next chapter, and the next chapter, and the next chapter. There are, are just nothing but bangers in a Storm of Swords besides one chapter, but we'll talk about that at a later point here in a Storm of Swords. As always, if you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. And you can find me at Twitter, on Twitter at Quentin. And you can find me at Brennan B. Fish on Twitter, Brennan B. Fish on Reddit. And my website is brennanbfish.substack.com. I used to say wars and politics, but sadly, or not Woo. so sadly, wars and politics is floated away. So we want to, as always, we want to give a shout out and thank you to our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Marybelt, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way, of course, Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Fray Pies, Septon, Merrifull Head Affair, Lady Silverwing, Cabothian Frozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stone Haven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, refined wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who was abandoned to the orphans at the end of the crossroad to become the Queen of Memes. Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Kidneys, uh, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the, of the Flat Planetos Society, and our newest High Lords, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Warden of the Lake, and Lady Ken of House Motown, goddess of sips and wine. So thank you so much, as always, uh, to our High Lords and ladies for your support, and a special thank you to our newest High Lords. Absolutely. Thank you folks so much for supporting us on Patreon. It means a lot to both of us, and thanks for supporting us through... Some of you folks have been supporters of us for, for years now, and that means a lot to us, so thank you all very much. So join us next week as we kick off a brand new point of view who is absolutely the best point of view in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. 
I'm just going to keep kind of like just twisting that little knife until like <laughs> I finally get you to explode at some point. With Jamie fucking Lannister, as Bronn says in the Throne Show, with Jamie's first chapter in A Storm of Swords. I love that you did that nice poll about which uh, who was the better POV in Storm of Swords. Davos, my favorite, or Jamie, yours. And Jamie won by like, I, like, like, I think three to one, something like that. <laughs> I understand I'm in the minority and I will happily accept having the wrong opinion. I look forward to being incorrect for, for many Jamie episodes to come. It's going to be so much fun to convince you of the value of Sir Jamie of House Lannister, but I do know that you already like Jamie's chapters. But it's it's exactly. all good. Exactly. Davos is excellent. Davos is excellent. His chapters are great. You know, we can have, we look up to the stars and see the same thing <laughs> we were saying earlier. Damn right. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all of our patrons for supporting us. And we'll see you next time for Storm of Swords, Genie 1. <laughs>